It's Tuesday, June 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The family of George Floyd has released the results of an independent autopsy, saying that he was asphyxiated when the now-fired officer, Derek Chauvin, put his knee on Floyd's neck. The info contradicted some aspects of the Hennepin County Medical Examiner report, which now released some updates also calling Mr. Floyd's death a homicide. Paul Walsh, reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, joins us for more on these autopsy report details. Next, as protests continue throughout the U.S., social media is amplifying tensions and giving us a real-time chronicle of the riots and police responses. Protesters are organizing on social media, and police are even using social media to try and track protesters and looters. Sebastian Herrera, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how social media is being used during this time of unrest. Finally, while COVID-19 was initially thought to be a respiratory disease, many of the symptoms have another thing in common, poor blood circulation and blood vessel damage. This is why 40% of deaths from coronavirus are related to cardiovascular complications. Dana Smith, senior writer at Elemental, joins us for how the disease is starting to look like a vascular infection instead of a purely respiratory one. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The compressive pressure of the neck and back are not seen at autopsy because the pressure has been released by the time the body comes to the medical examiner's office. Joining us now is Paul Walsh, reporter with the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Happy to be here. Thank you. Wanted to continue our conversation about George Floyd. We had some new developments in that story. The family for Mr. Floyd had a private autopsy done. They concluded that the death was a homicide brought on by not just one, but two officers kneeling on him. Obviously, we know Derek Chauvin, he had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, uh, but there was another officer who was also kneeling on him for some time. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about what we're learning from this new autopsy report. Based on that autopsy, not only was Officer Chauvin having uh, one knee pinned on George Floyd's neck for many minutes, the second officer had a knee on George Floyd's back, and the contention by the Floyd family autopsy is this uh, compressed the uh, area of your body where your lungs are and just made it all that more difficult for Mr. Floyd to breathe. From the video that we saw, Mr. Chauvin has his neck on the back of Mr. Floyd for about eight minutes and 46 seconds. They said that Mr. Floyd was unresponsive for nearly three minutes of that. So they're contending that he actually died there rather than later in the hospital when he was getting checked out or, or in, in route to the hospital or anything. They're saying that he passed there and then when he was still in custody by the police officers. There's uh, strong evidence to believe that's true. There was some pulse checking that went on at the scene, and uh, you can hear on one or more videos that there was an expression that there was no pulse. But just because you don't have a pulse at a given moment doesn't mean that you won't have a pulse at a later moment. But I think in the, particularly in the fact that there was never a pulse regained for the rest of that evening until he was declared dead, according to this second autopsy, there seems to be room to contend that he died right in that spot. So what we're getting from the new autopsy, the result was a constriction of blood to the brain and air to the lungs, 
Uh, and there's, these are two doctors that found this in this private autopsy. And this contradicts the criminal complaint and part of the report that we got from the Hennepin County Medical Examiner. The full report uh-huh. is still pending. We haven't gotten that full thing. But in that one, they said that there's no physical finding to support the diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. And they said that uh, his underlying health conditions, possibly uh, coronary artery disease or hypertensive heart disease, and maybe, you know, if he was on any alcohol or drugs, might have also played a part in that. Now, uh, the timing of this uh, discussion is pretty good because the medical examiner, in what appears to be a game of uh, back and forth, released new information within the past 15 to 20 minutes, adding these factors is that it was a, uh, a cardiac event that worked in concert with the compression put on Mr. Floyd by law enforcement. What the medical examiner continues to stand by is that he was not strangled and or, and or asphyxiated. They're saying that the pressure on the neck played uh, a role in, in concert with putting Mr. Floyd in cardiac arrest and also new in, in recent minutes is the medical examiner saying that Mr. Floyd was under the influence of fentanyl and that there was evidence of recent methamphetamine use and then that would explain the potential intoxicants along with the 911 callers informing dispatch that he appeared to be out of it or drunk. So now we have these this private autopsy done. We have the one by the medical examiner, the county medical examiner. How does this work for the prosecution or the defense? Can they submit both and, and use parts of both? Is there or there is the county medical examiner? Is that the one that everybody goes with? That's a great question. Uh, we've seen trials before where additional autopsies are brought into evidence. There are two sides here that can bring evidence before the court not three, the prosecution and the defense. So one or neither could take what the family's autopsy finds in whole or in part. Also, it could be entered into evidence should there be a federal trial uh, on civil rights violations, or it could uh, work its way to a wrongful death suit, which certainly the the family has all the control over as far as... um, in their attempt to be made whole. All these things play a small role into the overall picture, but as I mentioned, you know, the, the video is hard to, to do away with, uh, you know, when he's, the cop is there Correct. on him for so long and, and you can yep. see, you can see him really just kind of slowing down to the point where, you know, he might've been unconscious uh-huh. there on the floor. So, I mean, those are all hard things to square away. Yeah. Now there's, there are other angles of video that are out there that give us little bits of more information. I'm not so sure it's one of those ahas by any of them. And the video we haven't seen yet and that we're not going to see for a fair amount of time are the body cam videos of the officers. But those body cam videos from police could well you know, shine a bright light on just how much force was being used to restrain George Floyd. Paul Walsh. Reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. It first appeared on Facebook and then was simultaneously posted to Instagram, 
Twitter and a lot of other platforms that help it to spread. And that's how a lot of the awareness of the video of George Floyd's death first came about. Joining us now is Sebastian Herrera, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about all the protests and the rioting and looting that's been going on in connection with the death of George Floyd. Social media plays such a huge part of this in organizing groups, both on the good side and on the bad side of things. There's people that are using social media to organize peaceful protests and marches. And then the flip side, people that are organizing so that they know where cops are, so that they can go to another location and stay away from them and loot and do all sorts of things. Sebastian, tell us a little bit how social media has become this central battleground for these protests right now. Yeah, well, first off, social media played a huge part, obviously, in the spread of the video, which first appeared on Facebook and then was simultaneously posted to Instagram, Twitter, and a lot of other platforms that help it to spread. And that's how a lot of the awareness of the video of George Floyd's death first came about. That set off a series of events of, as you mentioned, people organizing through different social media platforms in terms of protests throughout the country. And from there, it's kind of taken a a life of its own, as these things often do. You have people who have tweeted out misinformation about, you know, anything from pictures of the main officer who was involved in the death, pictures of somebody else, people linking those two together. You have companies that track social media saying that a lot of retweets have come from basically bots, you know, automated accounts, and that there's these two narratives kind of battling online, people blaming it on white supremacists and right-wing groups, and others blaming the riots on the left side and groups like Antifa. So that's all mixing together on Twitter and and these other platforms as these protests have continued. Police are even trying to use social media to see where protesters are going to be. And so that's another part of this as well. So like the New York Police Department said that they've been using social media to track some of this. And what's interesting on the other side of things is you have users tweeting out like the street is blocked off at a certain point or I'm listening to police scanners and this is what I'm hearing. And so that's a way of communication as well. But I think what we're seeing is just a flood of videos showing either protesters getting hit with rubber bullets or or being striked against from the police side of things. And those kind of videos becoming widespread to also videos of, you know, I saw a picture actually of a police officer that was bloodied from my assumption was seeing the picture from tweeting from confronting protesters. And these pictures and videos are just they, they get circulated so much. And what experts say is that it just kind of depends what your point of view is on these protests. But whatever your point of view is, you have some kind of content that kind of fires up that point of view. And that's kind of helps create the vision. And then there are a lot of players in these instances that just amplify that by either trying to draw attention to specific points or, again, by these automated bot-like accounts that just help retweet and circulate these things, especially on Twitter. And it's a weird time that we're living in, obviously, with coronavirus. People are just starting to get out after being quarantined and social distancing for a few months. So even Twitter and Facebook, they've seen their numbers grow, their users grow because of this time that we've had to stay away from each other. And very quickly, top trending items about coronavirus have given way to George Floyd and protests and things like that. Part of 
the reason that this has become so big, certainly it would have become big on its own, but some of the stuff that happened before the George Floyd video caused the attention to go from coronavirus to police brutality. What I mean by that is days before the George Floyd video came out, we were obviously, as America, wrestling with the death of Ahmaud Arbery, who was a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by armed white residents in Georgia, and he was killed from a rifle, I believe it was. And so there was a lot of racial tension around that. And then around the same time of the George Floyd video was the video that came out of that white woman in Central Park calling the police on the black man who had, you know, asked her to leash her dog in the park. And, and so those two events that happened right around the same time kind of already almost created some attention away from coronavirus into issues of police brutality. And so by the time the George Floyd video came out, there was already some attention around police brutality. And of course, the fact that the police officers that were involved, or the main one that was involved, wasn't arrested until days later, that helped charge things as well and, and kind of uh, helps create this moment in, in a sense. Sebastian Herrera, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Things like strokes and blood clots, a lot of cardiovascular complications that you don't typically see with a normal respiratory disease. So it's emerged in the last month or two that it could be that the virus is not only infecting cells in the lungs and the respiratory tract, but also infecting blood vessel cells. Joining us now is Dana Smith, senior writer at Elemental. Thanks for joining us, Dana. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit more about coronavirus and why it's been such a hard thing to get a handle around with all of the different symptoms that we are seeing that people are experiencing when it first came out, everybody right away thought this was going to be a disease of the lungs, a respiratory disease. That's why everybody was trying to secure so many ventilators. They thought that that was really the way that this was going to handle this virus. But as this thing has kind of infected so many more people, we're starting to see that this could be a vascular disease. This could be something that has more to do with blood vessels and how the virus affects that. That's why we're seeing people with all these underlying health conditions getting the brunt of this virus. So Dana, tell us a little bit about this. Why is this virus looking different? I mean, it's a really bizarre infection. And I want to be clear, you know, coronavirus is definitely still infecting the lungs. People do still have pneumonia like we initially thought they did. But like you said, there's a lot of really bizarre other symptoms that have emerged, things like strokes and blood clots, a lot of cardiovascular complications that you don't typically see with a normal respiratory disease. So it's emerged in the last month or two that it could be that the virus is not only infecting cells in the lungs and the respiratory tract, but also infecting blood vessel cells. And that's really unique. Not many viruses do this. And we don't think there's any other respiratory viruses, as far as we know, that do this also. So the original SARS virus, influenza viruses don't infect these blood vessel cells. So it's really unique for SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus in particular. And it could explain a lot of these really strange and really deadly complications that we're seeing. So let's talk a little bit about how it progresses through the body. SARS-CoV-2 goes through the body and connects to these ACE2 receptors that are usually in the nose and throat. And from there, what happens, it can start destroying some lung tissue and it can break open some blood vessels. And then it can start attaching to all these other 
cells that have to do with the blood vessels. They're called endothelial cells. And then it creates this immune response and then everything starts going haywire. But it seems that all these other side effects seem to be kind of coming from the blood vessel problems. So we know that SARS-CoV-2 gets into the virus, has to latch onto these ACE2 receptors. And there are ACE2 receptors all through your nose and your respiratory tract and in your lungs, They're actually all over your body. There's a ton in the intestines, there's some even in the brain, and they're also on these blood vessels. So we think that just like we've always thought about, the virus gets into the body through the nose and throat, which is why you still need to wash your hands, don't touch your face avoid being around people who are coughing. All the standard recommendations and protocol are still the same with this new development. So we still get infected through the respiratory tract. And then the virus travels down into the lungs where it is still causing damage and and pneumonia. But then the unique part is this kind of final step where it does actually get into the blood vessel cells, still activating on those ACE2 receptors on the blood vessel cells. And from there, it can travel everywhere in the body. And so that's why we start seeing these really bizarre symptoms like the COVID toes that people are talking about. So it could be a problem with circulation all the way to your digits, your fingers and toes. It's why you start seeing the blood clots. It's why we're seeing potentially damage in the intestines and the liver and the kidneys. Really serious diseases cause a lot of inflammation and can cause those organs to shut down just as part of the body's kind of overactive immune response, which is what we thought was happening with COVID-19 to begin with. And that still could be the case, but the evidence is mounting that there's this kind of other route that the virus is using to infect and cause damage in these other organ systems as well. And that's why people with these pre-existing conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, they're all at higher risk for this because of all that inflammation that's going on there. And learning some of this, it's also making people rethink how to treat this. Early on, there was a lot of talks about antiviral drugs, and maybe that's not the course really to take with this. Maybe you have to treat it differently. That's why for a time people were saying that the ventilators aren't even working the way they thought they were initially. And I want to be clear, I think antivirals still will help. It's still a pretty big question mark, but we do see a little bit of benefit with a drug like remdesivir. I think one issue is how early you give it. So if too much damage has already been caused, if the virus has already spread to the blood vessels, then it might be too late for an antiviral drug. But if you give it early on in the infection, it could really help the immune system defend the virus. But the big question now is how do we treat the symptoms best? And so the respirators, you know, if you put someone on ventilation, it's just helping push air into the lungs. And so when we thought that people weren't getting enough oxygen in their lungs, that was kind of the natural first step to take. But like you said, it didn't help as many people as we thought or we hoped it would. So one issue with the blood vessel damage is that the lungs can't do the normal transfer of oxygen and carbon dioxide into the blood. That's what the blood vessels in the lung are for. They take the good oxygen, they put it into the blood, and they pull the carbon dioxide out, and then your lungs exhale that. But with the damage to the blood vessels, that process is kind of cut short. And so that's why people are still not getting enough oxygen into the blood, even though they're on ventilators. And to be honest, I don't know if there's a good solution or a good treatment for that. You know, it's something that doctors are certainly looking into. But then, like you said, another possible treatment are drugs that actually stabilize endothelial cells and kind of help reinforce them. And so really common drugs like statins and ACE2 or ACE inhibitors can actually help protect those endothelial cells. So that might be one way to prevent some of these symptoms that we're seeing with the blood vessel damage. Dana Smith, senior writer at Elemental. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.